Betting. The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of the Bet with the Best podcast. Its mission is to explore better ways to bet on races, to seek out new, successful players, and to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. I am very pleased to announce that the Bet with the Best podcast has its first sponsor. And it's an ideal sponsor, Amwager, an ADW built by horse players for horse players. Amwager has all sorts of unique features designed to give you an edge when betting. For example, one of my favorite tools is the conditional wagering system that's lightning fast and lets you set the minimum price you will take on a wager and then we'll fire off the bet at the last possible second, assuming the odds meet your minimum. We always talk about value on the Bet with the Best podcast, and this is a great tool for ensuring that you are betting only when you think you have an edge. It's great for win betting, but Amwager lets you apply it to other pools as well, such as Exacta and Trifecta wagers. Another tool that I really like is the Dutch wagering tool that lets you weight your bets rather than simply boxing a set of horses. We've discussed on Bet With The Best podcast the strategy of tossing a weak favorite and boxing several other horses in exactas and or trifectas and supers. And this tool lets you do that in a much more efficient way than a simple box. Yet another cool tool that Amwager provides is a fair exacta, a fair value exacta grid. On Bet With The Best, we've talked about how sometimes there will be significant discrepancies between the wind pool and the exacta pool, particularly at Naira tracks where the computer teams are in one pool but not the other. This tool will flag such discrepancies and help point you to possible underlays and overlays. We've also talked about with computer model players on Bet With The Best, and Amwager has another great feature for those of you who are using computer models or thinking about doing so. That is the ability to wager by file upload. You can quickly upload a large number of wagers using a simple CSV format. Those are just a few of the many special features that Amwager has to offer, along with live video and race replays, free integrated form to win past performance information, and much more. Amwager is licensed and operated in the US, and best of all, they will actually pay you to play. If you sign up now and deposit and bet $150, then you will earn a $150 lump sum bonus. So there's no reason not to give Amwager a try. If you want to bet with the best, then you need the best tools there are to wager with. You need Amwager. Welcome to episode 11 of the Bet with the Best podcast. This week, I have the pleasure to be chatting with longtime Chicago-based player Frank Mistari. Welcome, Frank. Glad to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me, and uh, looking forward to talking horse racing and uh, and betting. Yes, uh, that's what we're here to talk about, and you and I have chatted before, so I'm really looking forward to this discussion, and I'm sure the listeners will really get a lot out of the conversation. And as you know, um, I like to start with what I call the horse player origin story and real interested to hear how you got started 
in racing and how that evolved to, you know, to where you are today as a player? Yeah, I started uh, as a kid. My parents and my grandparents took me to the racetrack and it was nothing. They were not horse players per se. They did it as a fun day out on a Saturday, maybe, I don't know, once a month or, you know, a couple times, a few times a year to either Arlington or Sportsman's or Hawthorne here in Chicago. And then our, our winters, we would go visit my grandparents in Florida and we would go to Calder. And as a kid, I wasn't allowed in there because you had to be, uh, I think it was 16 or 18, whatever. And as I got closer to the age, we kind of, you know, snuck me in there. And uh, that's how I got started to enjoy the game, but it was nothing serious. I didn't know uh, anything about it. It was just a fun day out. Um, as I moved along, I always had the gambling bug. And uh, through my high school, college days, my friends and us, we would do it again as a fun time out. Um, drafted by the Dodgers in 1987, thought I was gonna play in the big leagues, got released two years later, and didn't know what the heck I wanted to do with my life. Knew I liked horses, knew I liked gambling. Um, started, you know, I can make a living or I can make money betting on baseball. I played professionally and well, that didn't work out real good. I wasn't very good at it. Lost a lot of money there. Uh, took a job where I was in sales and uh, I had a lot of free time in the sales industry. I would fill my quotas, started hanging out at the track and thought I knew what I was doing at the racetrack and I had no clue what I was doing. I would go there, buy a racing form, thought I knew what I was looking at and had no idea what I was looking at. Um, lost a lot of money, lost a lot of money that I couldn't afford to lose. And I would probably say degenerate gambler at that time, you know, because when you start losing money, you don't have and can't afford to lose. You shouldn't be doing something like that. Um, and I was fortunate going through a couple, three years of losing a, too much money. I met an individual um, who taught me not only how to do numbers, such as, let's call them buyer numbers. He taught me how to make figures. And on top of making a figure, he taught me through his historical uh, watching of races and changing of numbers he taught me how to make what i call or he called adjusted numbers based on pace based on trip based on trouble and he came up with lengths or uh, criteria that he realized made a lot of sense it wasn't perfect but we would take a final number and we would just with all the variables involved, create even a more, what I consider accurate number based on all the different criteria. And because of that person, um, I became not necessarily a winning player right away, because uh, I'm not even sure how many real winning players there are in horse racing, because it is so hard. A little easier 25, 30 years ago when I was uh, learning how to do it, I thought, um, and, and this was basically in the in the mid 90s when I sat with him every single day and learned how to make numbers and 
adjusted figures and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I hear some of your other podcast guys you dealt with and, you know, working into that number, the bias and the trip and all of that. And that's kind of what I learned to do. Um, and it really helped me to not lose quite as much and have some winning days also um, in, into, you know, the mid nineties. Uh, I started having a family, kids came along. I couldn't spend as much time anymore. I took a probably 10 or 12 years off where I would play sporadically um, from the late 90s to 2010, 11. But it was so hard raising a family, coaching the kids uh, sports all the time. And I, and, and I hated losing. And I hated losing my money. So I wouldn't play um, a lot because if you didn't play a lot, in my opinion, uh, it was hard to win at this game or have any success at all. So I took a bunch of years off and uh, about 2010, 2012, somewhere in that range, um, my boys became of the age of high school where I wasn't coaching them anymore. I had more free time and it basically was a perfect timing for me that I thought to get back into it full time and uh, the rebates started right about then for me, uh, the contest world came into play, especially the live money contest. And that's what I really loved about the game was live money contests and, uh, and doing what I was doing daily, betting the horses and then getting, you know, compensated by rebates on top of it it was like a win-win-win even if i lost i was still getting some return um and then when i got into the contests then i was really really hooked again and that's where we came today you know from about 2014 on to now um i play just about every day i played the golf stream circuit uh, from roughly 2013 to just up till the, Ke the start of Keeneland this year, I left Gulfstream, and I only play one circuit. So I play Gulfstream other than contests or big days. I play Gulfstream every day, and I should have quit Gulfstream a year ago probably. I couldn't beat the Tapita. I couldn't beat all the different things that happen uh, in Gulfstream, you know, whether it's the computer guys or whatever goes on there. I stuck around too long, and last year was uh, – pretty much of a disaster for me because um, I thought I could beat the Tapita and and all the variables that go with the Tapita, not necessarily the Tapita, but the horses changing uh, surfaces all the time. Um, and I made the decision after a dozen or so years to switch to Kentucky. And I did that at the start of the Keeneland meet. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with the move. Um, I reached out to a couple people that you've, uh, had on your podcast who've been gracious enough to help me with some information I needed on the Kentucky circuit. And I'm thankful for that. And, uh, and, and I'm real excited about the Ellis park. Uh, you know, they've had one of the craziest biases I've seen in a long time for the first three or four weeks of, uh, them running over there. And I'm hoping, and I'm, really hoping that I'm going to capitalize on some of those severe biases when these horses run back here in the next uh, couple of weeks. And then, and then that's basically how I, you know, have gone from start to finish. And, 
and probably the horse racing gambling story that I'm most proud of. My son, Justin, as you guys well know, um, you know, he learned from all the trials and tribulations that I went through and I helped him learn how to handicap. And he had the benefit of sitting with guys like myself, Jim Bennis, Garrett Skiba, Mike Mulvihill. Um, and he saw what we did. And that was one of the things that helped him to the NHC victory, you know, back in 2021. And that was one of the greatest, uh, not only handicapping gambling stories of, uh, of my family's life, but definitely, uh, one of the greatest days of my life, something that, uh, he did and, and it changed his life overnight or within one weekend. And, uh, I was super proud to be a part of that, uh, whole thing with him and, uh, uh, and it was a, a great benefit for the suffering that I did 30 years ago, losing a lot of money. He got the payback out of it. So it, it, it I think it, it definitely worked out for us. Yeah, that must have been fun, uh, you know, being there with your son when he wins the NHC. That would be a blast, I would think. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, you know, there's a lot of video out there of it. And, uh, you know, the minute or the last 15 seconds of that race was, uh, I don't know what was going through my mind or what I was yelling at the big screen, but uh, I'm not a big cheerer. I don't yell a lot at the races. I don't cheer for my horses much, but I know I was uh, uh, for Rose's Crystal that day. And um, and like I said, it changed my son's life. And uh, it was a crazy, crazy moment and a crazy weekend for us. Yeah, I know since you played sports, sounds like you were a very good baseball player and you've had kids in sports. It's playing, you don't really feel the stress, at least I didn't. I mean, I've always been real competitive. You know, you're just focused on, you know, playing the game, but watching your kids play is a whole different ball game, uh, oh. pun intended. Yeah, no doubt. It's uh, everything they do, like you hit it right on the head. I. I, I didn't feel a lot of pressure when I played. I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like, but when I watch them, you know, tomorrow or whenever we're going to hear this, but uh, with the recorded of it tomorrow, my son's going to try to qualify for the Illinois open for golf here, which is a big event in Illinois for uh, mainly amateurs, but a lot of pros try to qualify for it. And every swing he takes, uh, you know, I can just feel my chest pumping out. Like, uh, I'm, I'm so nervous. And, and I know he's not even nervous about it when he's doing it, but I'm, I, I carry the nerves for both of us or whatever. So, uh, but I am looking forward to watching him tomorrow, walking the course and, uh, he's qualified five of the last six times and last five of the last six years. And hopefully he does it again tomorrow. Well, we wish him luck. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, being a competitive um, player in sports, how have you brought, you know, that sort of mentality or what you learn as a player into your horse playing or if at all? Yeah, definitely a lot of it. You know, first, uh, early on, I brought a lot of that ego or a lot of that uh, competitiveness into the gambling and sometimes, a lot of times, it's bad because you think you can win at everything you do and you could be successful at it. And um, there's no way around. If you don't work hard, you're not going to be successful at it. And uh, and so the competitiveness that I learned on the baseball field playing did carry over, but sometimes it might have been a detriment to me, um, thinking I can win at whatever I was going to do. But uh, 
as the years went by and the losses piled up in my mid twenties, I realized, Hey, if you want to be good at something, you better put the hard work in. And, and that's one thing nowadays between uh, my business and my horses, uh, I make sure that I put the work in. And if I don't have time to put the work in for a day or a weekend, that, then I just take the day off. And, and, I, and I don't worry about, oh, did I miss a big score? Or did I miss a good bet? Uh, because you never know if you missed a good bet or good score if you're not putting the work in. So I, that's the thing that I probably learned the most. Uh, you know, be selective. Don't worry about missing the big score. If you can't put the time in the day before or the day of, if you have something else to do, just pass that day because it's it's too hard if you're not uh, putting all the work in. And, and uh, you know, so the, to bet every race or bet with little time preparation, to me, at least for me, it's not a winning uh, way to do it. So I've learned to to pass on a lot of that. So I want to kind of go back step by step over some of your horse player origin story. You talked about um, paying a pretty high tuition early on um, and then meeting a mentor at the track and who taught you the number side of the game. And you came up with a methodology where you, you basically tried to, I think, create one performance number that sort of started with a speed figure, but you adjusted it for different factors like trips and pace and other things and then you kind of use that as your main handicapping tool um does that kind of describe the, what that process was or do you want to go into any more detail about that you know the the figure making piece you talked about yeah def that that is the definite uh i use that you know for my the main circuit that i play i rely almost totally on my own numbers I do use the Ragazin sheets also, which I have uh, confidence in their their final numbers are, uh, I think, as good as any publication out there. Um, I use Brisnet a little bit for their pace stuff. I, I think their pace stuff, um, it's not perfect, but it's uh, it's something that I I use. And I use those tools to compare to the stuff that I put together every day. So when I do it, you know, you always want to have a little bit extra, you know, maybe it's something just to give you a little more confidence. If somebody else agrees with you or if another publication agrees with you at times, um, I think that helps gamblers at times, you know. And and I also have nowadays uh, Jim Bennis, who I've known for 30 some years. We've become really close in the last four or five years. Uh, we both play the same circuits. We, uh, he was, he was an Illinois guy forever. Um, he switched over to California. We, we used to cross paths there. I convinced him to come to Gulfstream, and when he came to Gulfstream, Gulfstream was a disaster. He destroyed that meet for me. So that was that wasn't a good job of me bringing him over. But now we both follow Kentucky circuit, and we talk every every morning. And uh, we just throw ideas around each other. You know, did you see this or did you see that? And sometimes it's a good thing just to talk through things if you have that ability to, you know, deal with somebody who you feel is uh, on par with you as far as handicapping, throwing ideas out and, and discussing different things at times. And we do that every day. Uh, and I shouldn't say every day because the one time, you know, we both have great respect for each other. And 
when we're in a contest against each other, we don't even talk that day, to be honest. We really just say, you know, because I would hate for him to talk me, you know, into something that was his selection and then me beat him in the contest with his own selection. So we don't even talk on contest days uh, when it comes to that. But every other day, um, you know, we're bouncing things off each other just to get a little more confidence, I think, in that kind of thing, you know. So uh, so it's good to have someone like that. But, uh, you know, getting back to your question, those are the things that I do. I really, really rely on my own numbers and uh, and then compare it with other publications just to get a little bit more um, maybe confidence in, in the bets that I'm putting out there. Well, I, I envy you having someone like Jim to uh, on a daily basis, talk about the races. You both are great players. I've, I've been uh, on the losing end in contests to both of you. Um, so <laughs> I have a lot of respect for you guys. And so kind of give me a sense because you're not the first player that that's talked about how, um, you know, horse players can really benefit from sharing ideas and especially with players, other players that, that they respect and can learn from. So just give it me a little bit of an idea of sort of what you and Jim would talk about on a typical day when you're, you're talking about the upcoming day of the races. A lot of, a lot of times the first thing we, we always run by each other and I'll give you an example today. You know, when we talked this morning, his first thing was, um, oh, the car doesn't look very good today. And I was in kind of a disagreement. There was two races that I really, really liked. Um, and he didn't really have a strong opinion. And then when I brought it up to him uh, and we talked about it a little bit, he kind of saw things like a little bit more my way. Um, I think we had the same opinion in one race. He kind of thought that uh, the horse that I liked was going to be over bet. Um, we both thought it was a two horse race and, and we talked through, you know, the race setup. um, you know, the horse that, uh, you know, maybe we both like, or don't like And a lot of, and, and there are times that, um, we fall on, I don't say we fall on different horses a lot, but we do fall on different, maybe, uh, I might like one with the two, three, he might like two with the three, four. I mean, so it's never or very rarely is it ever identical or exactly the same horses. But within, you know, the three or four horses we're using it, we usually get pretty close because our handicapping styles are very similar that we found out through time. Um, we bet totally different. Um, I'm more of a uh, I, I don't like to spread. Um I'm more of the one of the guys where if I'm going to hit something, it's going to be worthwhile. You know, the kind of ways that you see me in contest play, if, you know, if I hit my contest bet uh, on any given contest tournament, usually I'm going from, you know, a small number to a pretty sizable top of that leaderboard. Um, I really don't like to grind my way through because I don't like to make a lot of bets. I like to only bet a few things, you know, so we have a little different style of how we bet, but our handicapping, the way we see things, the way we adjust for paces and stuff like that, and the way we look at trips uh, are very similar. So it's a good person to run things off of. And, and it gives us that little extra confidence, you know, that, hey, someone else sees what we see or sees what I see. 
and, and that kind of does help, you know, but we'll, we'll, we'll go through the whole card. We'll almost, we'll talk about every race. We'll, we know what races we're skipping because neither one of us bets, you know, a lot of maidens, you know, we like to bet things that we see and we have seen. Um, if, if it's a maiden race and there's eight first starters, there's no chance me and him would bet those races. Uh, if, if it's a, you know, mile and a half grass race, we're probably not betting those, you know, and many of the people that you've had on the podcast talk about, you know, what do they like to bet? Well, this, I'm pretty similar to those guys. Give me a dirt race with horses who have a lot of information and I've seen run and, and that's where I'm going to focus most of my wagers. Every once in a while, it could be a, a turf race or whatever, but I focus most of my big plays because that's where I feel I can get um, the, the best edge that I possibly can because I know those horses. I can get a true number. I can get a true adjusted number. And if the value is there, which has been the game changer in the last 20, 25 years, is the value is just not out there. You know, a lot of the people on your podcast have brought that up. And I'm in total agreement that, you know, horses who might have been 10, 12 to 1 years ago are now 3, 4 to 1. And it's undervalued for that horse. And, and that's what's made the game really, really, really difficult to, for guys like myself who are you know, I don't use a computer. Uh, you know, I just do everything by a racing form and my own numbers. So I'm way behind the times of trying to get the computer help like some of these guys are. So that's made the game real hard. But you do feel like the work you put into those performance figures that are you're the only one that has give you an edge. It's not something that's publicly available. It's based on some of the information out there, but that's sort of where you think you get a big edge is in in that uh the work you put in there oh definitely like you know a bias the biggest one for me i think is biases um there's there's some adjusted numbers that i have right now on some of these ellis park races to be honest i can't even believe it myself because i played a race last week um that a horse came back and the horse ran so bad in his first start at Ellis, it was one of those where I couldn't believe the horse ran that bad. Um, it was almost like the horse, maybe something went wrong in the race, you know, and, and I talked to Jim in the morning and I'm like, Jim, you know me, I, you know, when I'm strong in my opinions, uh, you know, very confident in my opinions. And when I see something I like, I'm going to, I'm going to bet it pretty heavy. And he's like, yeah, I know what you see, but yeah, something might've went wrong. And uh, I didn't bet as much as I normally would, because I had that doubt in my head and my adjusted number was right. And, and that's what made me excited again, is that if some of these biases come back that the computer guys are never gonna find, in my opinion, unless they have somebody watching the races and doing adjusted numbers and have confidence in their adjusted numbers, but the bias type races, that we're seeing at Ellis for the first three or four weeks here so far, when it gets back to a, a neutral track, there should be some great opportunities. And uh, I would love to see bias racetracks, you know, for two weeks straight at every track and then go back to neutral for two weeks and then back to a bias for two weeks. And then guys like myself who watch replays over and over and follow a circuit, 
that's where I think my edge is by making my own figures. And uh, we just don't see a lot of that as much as uh, we used to, I don't think. So in regarding the bias, do you think um, the value there is playing them back later um, off the bias number? Or do you think that people have caught on pretty quickly at Ellis and they kind of build in, you know, the, the bias into the price so it's hard to get a price? playing the bias today you're more focused on trying to get these horses when they run back and they might not be in such a favorable or unfavorable situation is that sort of the way you're you're playing that yeah definitely because the, the horses you know if it's a bias if it's a rail speed bias today well most people who are you know horse handicappers of any decency they could pick up a racing form today or whatever and say oh you know the the speed and rail is good I can tell who's making the lead. I don't think that's a super hard thing to do where you could see one or two horses that are going to be close to the front and you could take advantage of that pretty easily. But to bet back these horses who were, you know, mid-pack horses who were three, four wide out of the 10 post and they're they're running against a, a severe rail bias, even I can't give an adjusted number at times that that even makes sense but when the horses run back and they they run way better than they did against the bias, that's the things that I think are are an advantage, you know, to myself and um, that I can capitalize on. But trying to capitalize on a rail bias, uh, I really don't like those days, to be honest, because if I think a horse is going to make the lead from the one post and he breaks too slow and has to rush up wide for some reason, well, I just lost my advantage. So when I'm making bets, I'd like the track to be neutral, to be honest, but leading up to that, I want some biases just so I can find hidden horses that create value for me. So that's one of the big advantages of focusing on the one circuit. You feel like you're really on top of, you know, any sort of bias. Um, do you also watch a lot of races? Are, are trips a big part of the, what you factor into your performance figure? Oh, definitely. Yeah, we were, you know, I watched the races from, you know, like I said, Gulfstream. Um, I knew that circuit like the back of my hand up until the Tapita came into play. And then I felt like I, you know, I didn't know nothing because I was doing so bad at it that, uh, um, like I said, I should have left a long time ago. Because uh, after the first three or four months, I was so bad, especially on the Tapita races. And then when horses would come off the Tapita, I really struggled and I, sh I should have just said the heck with it and, and stop playing there. Cause I gave a lot of money away last year that uh, at that circuit that I, I shouldn't have when I knew the horses so well, and maybe that was a detriment. I knew the horses so well that I thought, Oh yeah, I can still beat this no matter what. And, and I was wrong. And I would, uh, and I thought that the Tapita would be a great thing because that should have created a lot of issues for other players with three different surfaces, you know, between grass. Well, they don't have grass now, but it should have been in a perfect world with three different surfaces. I should have been able to capitalize and, and I just didn't. And it got me to leave. And now uh, uh, that's how I got to K Kentucky, you know, but uh, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, you know, how I do it every day, but I do watch all the replays. I take, you know, trips on every race that uh, at Ellis and, It'll follow back into Churchill and Keeneland and Turfway. I'll stay on the Kentucky circuit uh, as long as I think I have some edge, which doesn't always lead to winning necessarily, but uh, 
um, in the long run, hopefully it does. And, uh, um, and that's why I, I like to play that one circuit. So do you think part of when they went to Tapita that might have hurt you in terms of your edge is uh, it made it harder to do good figures because you had so few races on, on the three different surfaces? Did you think that had anything to do with it or just, just the Tapita dynamics in general? I think that had some to do with it, but for the first probably, oh, I, I forget now, but for an extended period of time, three, four, five, six months, the Tapita played so crazy to me. And there's some information out there that shows, you know, the sprints on the Tapita, you had to be within two lengths of the leader, you know, at the top of the stretch to win. But on the routes, they were coming from three, four wide and closing from far back from more than six lengths, you know, and, and to me, that doesn't make sense. You know, why should going shorter um, have a different <laughs> factor in whether the horse is up front or closers on the same surface? And, and I couldn't figure it out. And I, and no matter what I tried, I couldn't figure it out. And uh, so eventually it just got me to say, Hey, I'm just not playing this meet that I love to play for, you know, a dozen years. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. And then when they took out the turf course this year, um, it took away some more good racing. So I, I basically had to, in my opinion, you know, move circuits if I was going to stay in the game. And, and and this is pretty much my last circuit. I've tried every other circuit full-time, uh, California, New York, Florida, um, Florida was my most successful. Uh, that's why I stayed there. But now Kentucky's the last one. And uh, if if that's not a success, I might just become a contest only player. I'm not sure that works real good if you're not playing daily. I, I think for me to play daily helps my contest play, keeps me sharp and how I bet and everything like that. But uh, you know, as I get older here and get into retirement here in the next couple of years, and uh, I need something to do, so that's why I do the horses. But uh, uh, but if I can't be successful or if I'm losing a lot of money, uh, I'm not going to do it because I don't like to give away uh, the money that I've earned uh, as I get closer to retirement. So that must have been a tough decision that you're going to change circuits and you made the move to Kentucky. So maybe talk a little bit about how you made that transition, you know, what you had to do to get up to speed on the new circuit and to get comfortable and confident. Yeah, so it was a huge, I mean, I struggled with it because I didn't want to make the move because it's it's starting all over again. You know, there's um, coming up with new pars for all these tracks and, and getting to know the trainer jockey combos and getting to know everything is brand new it's starting all over for me and i don't i don't like that so i really struggled with it but like i said i probably should have done it about six or eight months sooner because i i wasn't doing well up my main track golf stream so i stayed too long i did know that and uh, um but coming over here i, I like i said i reached out to a couple people who uh, who knew that circuit and, and they were more than helpful to me, they offered their time. I asked questions. They gave me some information on some pars and stuff like that that I needed for the all the tracks. And then 
uh, I went to work with figuring out how to make, you know, my own numbers for Keeneland and Churchill and now with Ellis and, and I'm, and I'm doing that on a daily basis. So, uh, I'm, and I'll continue to do that. And, uh, so far it's been so good. Um, it's been really, you know, a pretty good success for me so far to make the change. Um, a, a lot different than I'm used to because at Gulfstream, it was, you know, one track for 10 months out of the year. They were doing Calder for a little while there, or Gulfstream Park West, whatever they called it. Here, it's going to be a little different because you go through so many different tracks. And then when I get to Turfway, it, it's going to be all, you know, synthetic for that whole meet. Um, so it's going to be different. It's going to be something that uh, is a challenge, but I do like that challenge. And uh, and so far, I'm, I'm excited about it. And, and so far, it's been something that... Uh, um, has been, you know, has been successful financially so far for the start of it, and hopefully it continues. So, about how long have you been? Have you made how long ago did you make the switch to Kentucky? It was the opening day at Keeneland when I first made the switch. So, what was that? April first, roughly, or right around sometime in April. So, not um, long played, ago at all. No, not long enough. It's only a few months. I played the Keeneland circuit uh, every day. Um, I played the Churchill until they switched over to Ellis and now at Ellis. So it's only been four or five months, whatever that is, four months, something like that. So it's still a learning process for me. There's still a lot of stuff that I don't know. Um, you know, and there's so many differences, you know, I found out real quick that, you know, Dale Romans at Gulfstream is a lot different than Dale Romans in Kentucky. I did find out that out real quick. You know, he is a different trainer for whatever reason, whether he gets his horses ready for Kentucky or whatever it is. But, you know, at Gulfstream, he was the kind of guy that I was playing against most of the time. Here, it's totally opposite. You know, he he has everything ready to go in Kentucky. When he sends them out, it seems like they're all, all on go. And those are the intricacies that um, it takes some time to figure that out. You know, it's not just, uh, not just going to fall on your lap. You got to follow it and you have to... Uh, you know, it has to hit you right in the face that, okay, this is, this is a different thing than you're used to. So make the adjustment. And, uh, and I did pretty quick on that. So how much time, um, do you put in? Like if you're going to, going to play a day or at, you know, that during the day, you know, counting the, the time you're playing the races and the preparation, you know, is this like a, a full-time job how many hours are you putting in um because you're making your own figures watching trips doing all that seems like a lot of work yeah it is a it is a ton of work i mean it's it's crazy number it's crazy amount of hours it's it's definitely more time and i hate to say this i mean i can say it now because i got three boys who work for me in my business uh in my insulation contracting business so they're a great help which gives me more time but i definitely spend more hours doing my horse racing you know when i'm when i'm sitting there watching the races alone you know our time ellis starts today at 11 45 the last race goes off at four o'clock so you know i got well over four hours into that totally just watching during it and that's not even counting my preparation or what i do after the races to create my numbers so creating the numbers is a little lot quicker for me now that um, I, some of the numbers I can kind of do throughout the day. If I know the track variant is constant for the last week or so, I can make the numbers pretty quick, you know, and then doing the adjustment that isn't as much time, but going back and 
handicapping for the next day. You know, I probably spend, I like to handicap the night before. Um, so I'll start, you know, this week we'll race Friday at Ellis. So sometime Thursday night, I'll spend an hour, an hour and a half um, looking at the card. And then I go to bed, clear my mind, wake up again, get the scratches and probably spend another hour, an hour and a half on the card again. So I probably got three hours, two and a half to three hours in a card. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I am spending a lot of hours doing it and it's, you know, it's, uh, but it's something I love. I, I'm passionate for it. I love the game. I love doing the numbers. I, I love the, everything to do with horse racing. I really enjoy it. So it doesn't feel like work, you know, and, you know, to go out and sell insulation that I do for my living or have done for a living ever since I got released from baseball, that kind of seems a little bit more like a job because I'm not as passionate about it where I am horse racing. So when you're working at it, it doesn't even feel like work. It's kind of, it's just fun. It's something I would do probably anyway, because um, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I think we all share that passion. At least most of the listeners out there can relate to that for definitely. So let's just talk about you. You, you describe sort of how you approach things. And you, you, you're you in that second step of looking at the races. You've got your numbers in front of you. Um, how do you, you know, what gets you interested in, um, you know, what what's going to point you to a bet that you might want to make? You know, what are you looking for? Give us an example of what might get you interested in playing you know one one or two races or sequence of races or whatever on the you know Ellis Park when's the next time they run we're recording on Sunday night they run Wednesday Friday they run Friday, Friday. they oh. only run three, yeah, they're three days a week now okay. so uh, yeah so yeah what I'll do is I'll first look at the you know start at the beginning of the card I'll look at the race shape um, I try to set up the race shape first, whether, you know, if there's lone speed, if there's a lot of speed and it sets up for closers. So I'll go through and do all that. As soon as I do that, then I will incorporate my adjusted numbers. And my adjusted numbers would say something like, okay, this horse, the one horse last time ran, um, you know, in a fast pace. And the adjusted number I gave them, you know, let's just say it's an 85 buyer. If you use it for that reference, um, I'm on a different grading scale, but I can, my numbers, I can cross them over to a buyer easily. But if, if he was an adjusted 85, when he ran in the fast pace race last time, now the race sets up where maybe he's lone speed. And last time he ran, you know, fifth by seven lengths because they went way too fast early. Now he's in that totally different race shape so the way i look at it he's gonna run that adjusted number because he doesn't have to go fast today so his adjusted 85 buyer that i gave him he's gonna do that in a real number this time potentially and when i see that and then i look and oh okay he's probably a little hidden because he's been dirtied up his last three starts I've given him an, an adjusted 85 buyer. Today, he's loose on the lead. He potentially is going to run that 85 buyer, and he might be four to one, six to one, eight to one, whatever the number is. I mean, you know, I, I don't just necessarily say to myself, oh, I'm only betting six to one shots or better. I mean, to me, value is value. 
if I come up with a race where the winning horse in that scenario is going to be two to one, and I think it's fair value, but I could team them up with another horse who, who's 10 to one, and I can get an exact that's going to pay, you know, $50 for $2. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, I'll find a way to turn that two to one shot into some good value if it's out there. And and I play so many different types of wagers. Um, you know, very, I'm not a big win better. Typically the horses usually have to be, you know, a fairly substantial price for me to make a win bet, but I'll structure, you know, exactas or sometimes I make just tries some other races. I just make super effective. I mean, it's totally different. I don't have one uh, pool that I just necessarily always play in. It all depends on what, um, you know, what my numbers say and what my handicapping tells me to do. Sometimes I don't want to play in every pool. Uh, the value might just be in the exacta pool or the tri pool. If it, you know, if I know it's a, a three horse race and I have one horse on top of two horses, but I have to go five deep to feel confident in the try. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spread that much. I don't, I don't like to do that. That's not, I can't even get myself and me and Jim Bennis talk about this. He makes fun of me all the time. Um, you know, because I, I don't like, and no one likes making losing bets, obviously, but I don't even like to make punch what I know is losing tickets. You know, if I'm going two horses by four by five at a try, there's a lot of guaranteed losing tickets in there. And I don't like that. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather be wrong uh, in a race, but when I do hit it, um, I'm going to hit it for significant money by just being almost perfect. You know, uh, that's how I like to play. That's like how, how I like to do it. And, and I can do that because I'm more selective on the races and I'm only playing the races where I feel I'm very confident and I have a good opinion, which doesn't always mean I'm winning, but I'm going to play the races I feel real strongly about. So if I feel strongly, I shouldn't be spreading a lot. And and that's, uh, and that's what's helped me in the contest world is on a limited budget in the contest world. I'm used to playing, you know, straight exactas or, you know, two exactas in a race only. And that really, really helps me in the contest play where, uh, some other guys, they're used to spreading, so they're using up a lot of their, you know, they're using up a lot of their uh, money that uh, is in their bankroll because you can't go back into your pocket. If you lose the first three races or first two bets, you're broke in the contest and you're done. Where in the live money, uh, just betting every day, if you lose your first two bets, you can dig back in your pocket and make the third and fourth and fifth bet if you want. So that's what I like about uh, how my structure of betting uh, translates into the contest world. So we'll get into the contest in a little bit. Cause I know that you, you already mentioned that that's, that you really enjoy that and you're really good at that, but let's stick for now just with your, your betting. It sounds like you're mostly a vertical player. Cause you, I haven't heard you even mention any horizontal plays, but does that true? Are you more focused on, you know, the verticals or you yeah, spread Definitely. And, and another conversation we had this morning, I said to Jim Bennis, I said, you know what? Because I don't play Saratoga. I don't even look at Saratoga. It's not even on my radar because it's not my Kentucky circuit. But, you know, I have friends who text me in their plays and what they're doing. And 
you know, I had a good friend yesterday who was live to some big money in a pick four. And then I look at the pool and the pool's a million dollars roughly. And I, I said to Jim this morning, I said, you know, maybe I should just play the Saratoga pick fours and pick fives and, and just spread like crazy. And I think eventually I might land on a huge score in a pick four or five just by spreading and making a 50 cent or a dollar ticket and playing some, you know, some craziness in a few legs like that. And he laughed at me and said, I don't see you spreading like that after all these years where you never did it. So I said to myself, yeah, I'm probably not going to do that. So I don't play pick fours and pick fives because again, I, I, I play so few races a day. Um, it would really have to fall into my lap where, you know, I like three of the five or three of the four uh, races in the sweet sequence before I play those pick fours and pick fives. And that's never going to happen. You know, today um, I, I liked three of the first five races at Ellis somewhat. And uh, uh, I looked at the pick five sweet sequence and race three today was two-year-olds with eight or nine first starters. Well, that already knocks me out because I'm not going to guess on those horses. I'm not going to go eight deep or six deep or four deep, just guessing. So right away, that means I'm out of the pick five. I'm not even going to play it. So very rarely do I play those uh, sequences. Uh, usually it's, you know, pick a race, make the, you know, hit an exact, hit the exacta pull, hit the tri pull. If I'm betting a race and, and I really have a strong opinion, I'll bet tries exactas and superfectas in a race and cover all the pools sometimes. Uh, but uh, playing those pick fours and pick fives just too hard to me where if I hit three of the five legs or have strong opinions, I always miss those other two and that, and that frustrates me. So I don't even get involved in those pools. So you are primarily a vertical player and you like to play it tight and what some of our past guests have called you like to go for the kill shot or shoot for the pin you you really are sort of tight and making looking for that big score not spreading out and kind of reducing variance exactly that that's exactly how i play i i i just uh um you know i'm, I'm very confident in in my selections and some people will call me cocky and arrogant and i know i am but but that's the way that I my brain works, and that's the way I like to do it. And uh, um, and it's not right for everybody, but for me, I uh, I, I could withstand you know some some losing because I I do have times where you know if I'm playing one race a day, and now Ellis is only three days a week. I mean, there's possibility I can go two weeks without cashing a ticket when I'm only playing you know one race a day. That's only three bets a week. I'm not going to hit. A ton of you know, if if I was hitting two of those three bets all the time, uh, I would have been a retired a long time ago. I could probably tell you that, but that doesn't happen. We know that that's not something that anybody is that good at. So um, when I'm playing a few, I can withstand losses, and I know that they're going to come and go. And I'm and I'm real good at uh, you know a bad beat or a tough loss. Hey, I just go right to the next race and I don't worry about it. I, I I'm real good at that tolerance level of, uh, of the losses. Cause I expect it's going to happen way, way more times than the cashing, the winning tickets. But when I do cash, it, it makes up hopefully for, you know, 
those four or five losing bets that I made uh, earlier in the week. So you're all, I, I should have added in, you're, then you're, you're pretty selective when you, which races you're going to play. So let's just take us through an example of, um, it can be hypothetical or real, um, of something that gets you interested and, you know, how you attack it, you know, which, how you choose which pools you're going to play, um, just to get a better sense for how you, you know, structure your bets. Yeah, I can, I can give you a good example today of a race I was going to play. Uh, I think it was the eighth race at Ellis today on Sunday. Um, the morning line on the horse I liked, I believe, was eight to one. I think it was the one horse. Um, it was a horse that ran against the bias uh, that I had a big adjusted number on. I think he only had two starts, once as a two-year-old, which wasn't miserable. This year as a three-year-old was his only start, and he was just, um, his final number came back okay, but his adjusted number to me was significantly better than um, uh, almost everybody in the race, except for two horses, but those two horses drew outside today. I think it was an 11 or 12 horse field, if I recall. The two good horses drew outside, um, and I, I, I knew the, I was pretty confident the one was going to get a real, real good trip uh, today. And I was going to play one with, I think it was one with 10, 11 and, you know, then one with 10, 11, with 10, 11, 12, I think it were, were the numbers actually. And the opening click, the one was two to one. And right away I'm like, okay, he's nowhere near what I thought the price was going to be. I was probably going to accept somewhere in the five, six to one range. Um, and if I was going to play that race, which I wound up passing because I didn't think the value was there, I would have played something like uh, one with 10, 11, with 10, 11, 12 in tries. I would have made big exactas, one with 10, 11, probably would have made 10, 11 with one as like a, what I call a saver bet. Um, I'm only going to make it for, you know, 25% of what I'm making my top uh, exact on the other way. Um, and then if the price is right, if the horse would have been six to one, I would have made a win bet also. Um, so you can look at that. And basically, I think if you know, if you did the math one by two by by three, that's a that's only four combinations. And then I reverse it with the one and the two hole in try. Usually I'll do it in exact as then as my saber bets. So there's only two combinations there. Um, so. I'm not making a lot of combinations when I'm when I'm putting my bets through the window. I want to be right, and I and I'm going to only bet when I'm really confident that I'm going to be right. And when I didn't bet the race, um, I got beat, or the horse that I was going to bet, the one wound up running third, got beat by a Brad Cox horse who first time he he ran on the turf I think last time they put him in the dirt, and he ran a race that. I could have never seen the horse running, so I, I would have I wouldn't have won. And my horse just uh, you know, I'll, I'll, if you watch the race again, and anybody who listens to it, if you go back and watch it again, um, in my notes, which I'm not going to capitalize on next time anyway, so I can give out all this information. The horse is going to be way over bet next time, but he was on the rail. He broke within I'm going to say two lengths of the lead. He sat there. And the horse in front of him, who was actually the favorite, who I was totally betting against, was the two horse in the race, um, who went off at, I want to say two to one, nine to two, nine to five, something like that, who I was totally negative on, totally stopped 
right in front of my horse. Um, my horse got shuffled probably five, six lengths, never had a chance to move. He was, like I said, within three lengths of the lead. And by the time he got away from that horse who was, you know, slowing down in front of him, he was blocked really bad, you know, five, six lengths. And then he made a run, but, you know, he already gave up a ton of ground to the uh, leaders at that time, made a good close, but was never going to win the race at that point. But uh, next time, a lot of people are probably going to see that. And he would be a bet back for me, but uh, I'm pretty confident that, you know, that's not a hidden bet back. A lot of people saw it and he'll be way undervalued next time. But that's, that's usually a good example of how I make my bets. You know, rarely would I bet, uh, you know, if I'm going to go two horses by three horses by four horses in a trifecta, that usually means those are going to be real big prices and I'm not real sure of the race and I'm just taking shots against the favorites and hoping for something crazy, uh, to happen on a smaller bet for me, but, but spreading a little bit, but even that's a rarity. I, I don't, I don't do that very often. I like to, I like to be real strong in my opinions and try to capitalize on it when I'm right. So it sounds like you, when you you have a strong opinion, it's usually there's some horse you want to key. And if the price is right from a value standpoint, you may play it to win, but then what you'll do is you're also looking at some secondary opinions, usually probable. I mean, guessing like in this example, there was a favorite you didn't like and a couple other horses you thought fit and you'll start, you'll use them in the exotics with the key horse, maybe exactas, maybe tries even supers. Is that kind of the way you go? This is like, this is probably my favorite bet that I just explained, you know, the favorite, the nine to five shot that, you know, if, if I could have, uh, if I could have put a call out to people and said, Hey, he's nine to five, I'll give you three to one. I would have loved to take a lot of action on that kind of thing. You know? So those are the kind of races where I love, where I know the favorites vulnerable and I'm not necessarily then going for a 20 to one shot, you know, give me, give me a four to one, five to one who, um, who I think is good and let me put him in a combination with, uh, another couple four to five shots or four to one shots, five to one shots, eight to ones. And those are the kind of races. That's my, that's my happy spot, you know, where I really, um, I really feel comfortable. Those are the, probably the, those are the races I have the most successes in um, because, you know, I think their four to one shots are out there. Five to one shots are out there. We know how often they win, you know, to go out there and find a 20 to one shot um, every day. I'm not that good. I'll tell you that right now. I can't find a 20 to one shot. That's going to win that all that often that I really like. And I feel real confident in, and I think most people can't either. So um, to, to hit those things, you know, um, you know, you're not going to find 20 to ones that often. It just doesn't happen that often. So um, you got to narrow in on the ones where, we have more opportunities to get uh, horses to win at four to one or five to one. You, you get more frequency of, of being correct on your opinions, but betting against those bad favorites, that's the kind of things that, you know, uh, me and Jim Bennis look for. And when we, and, and that's what we both are very, very good at. I think is when we talk in the morning, 
we know the bad favorites right away and we try to capitalize on betting against those horses, you know? Uh, and I think our success rate of betting against those horses is pretty good. Doesn't mean we're still winning the race, but we're not getting beat by those bad favorites uh, or weak favorites that often. It's usually, if we do get beat, it's not that weak favorite that beats us. It's somebody else that we didn't have. Like I said, like, you know, the Brad Cox horse that won today, I could have never had that horse. So I don't feel bad that I missed it because I would have never bet that horse anyway. He just ran, you know, uh, he ran something that I was never foreseeing him run running. And uh, I was destined to lose that race most likely today because that horse ran something that I could never have count, accounted for. Well, you're not the first horse player that lost to a Brad Cox horse that ran a huge number he didn't expect so you're right. you're definitely not alone that's and, uh, right uh -huh. <laughs> um so it sounds like a you are looking for those vulnerable favorites that's one thing that gets you interested so you have that race this is a part i haven't quite nailed you down on so you've got a vulnerable favorite um, you need a sort of a next opinion of some horse you want to key, or are you willing to like just pick a group of horses and and play them in the exotics, or do you really need that second opinion of a, uh, some other horse other than the favorite that you can key on? I'm because you like to yeah. keep it tight, so I, I'm exactly. just curious. Yeah, I definitely need a key horse. I, I okay. like I said, I I like to keep it small. So even betting against that favorite. I need to also narrow narrow on, on one key horse that my main bet is going to be with him on top usually, and, and then I'm going to have some other stuff with him second. But that key horse is going to be if that key horse doesn't run first or second for me, I'm not catching a ticket, and that and that's always how I play. Um, so if I give out my you know, uh, if my best bet of the day is not running first or second. I'm not, there's no chance of me catching a ticket because I don't, I don't have a lot of different combinations going. And are you tossing the favorite there? You're not using it at all. When you find that weak favorite, you're, you're tossing the favorite and keen on the horse you like. Is that yeah. mean? Yeah, definitely. There's no chance. There's nothing that, uh, you know, I think this horse was two to one or nine, whatever he was, two to one, five to two. There's not a number. I don't think that would have got me to use him. Um, I know he wasn't going up to five to one. Uh, you know, he was, like I said, two to one, five to two in the program. I knew he was going to be around there. And I always hope that he's even lower, which I think he actually was. So there was no number that would have got me to use that favorite. And, uh, and again, if, if my key horse wins that race and the favor runs second, there's a lot, you know, and I'm, and I'm definitely negative on the favorite. I'm not cashing there either. I mean, I, I, you know, I have times where I decide not to make a win bet and that favorite does beat me potentially. He runs second and I get nothing, you know, and, and I don't worry about it because, uh, uh, you know, that that's not how I play. I, I, I don't worry about, oh, my best bet won and he was four to one. Well, my best bet won, but my other best bet in the race was that the favorite wasn't going to run. So I was wrong. And, and I don't feel bad about not getting the win bet. I just move on to my next thing and my next race or my next opportunity and, and, and betting against that vulnerable favorite is, uh, is, is a real key. Like you said, you know, give me those two things that the weak favorite I could bet against and, and another key horse that I can jump on. And those are the races that I'm going to uh, try to attack. 
So you don't use a vulnerable favorite defensively? Never. I would no. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, that's not something. <laughs> yeah, I, I would never do that. You know, because you know this whole game is based on our opinions and what we're doing against the the, the other people. Uh, you know, it's paramutual. So if my opinion is that this horse is not as fast as the three or four horses I'm using, I'm not using him defensively just because the public is telling me that I should, I, I'm not, I'm not listening to that. I have to have faith in, in what I do every day and what I know, you know, the same thing I do in my business. I'll relate it to that. You know, that I put out a job estimate for a hundred thousand and my customer comes to me and says, uh, your competitor says he could do it for 80,000. Well, if he could do it for 80,000, let him have it. I can't do the job for a hundred thousand because my numbers say, I have to be at a hundred thousand to make money. So doesn't mean that I didn't screw up my estimate and, and I was too high, but I'm not taking the chance to do it for 80,000 based on somebody else's opinion or somebody else's, um, you know, numbers or handicapping that they're looking at. I rely on my handicapping and my numbers and, and I'm going to live with that, you know, and, uh, I'm I'm always going to be that way, and and sometimes to a fault, you know. Jim Bennis will say to me, "You know, you are a little too greedy," and I'm like, "Yeah, I know I am, but that's my personality trait." And I'm not gonna I'm I'm gonna be 60 years old here in the end of next year, and uh, I don't think I'm switching anything anytime soon. <laughs> I like that analogy. That was a good analogy um, with the estimates against your competitors. You know, you you got to um, keep that noise out and and trust your your numbers and your instincts right but definitely definitely the same with horse players so i just want to spend a little more time on your the, the bets so you you like to keep it tight and you and you have you found the bone roll favorite you've got your key horse so whether or not you're going to play exactas or tries or supers kind of depends on your other, opinion of the others if you can narrow it down enough um you will play you might play some tries and supers, but if you have to spread too much, you might just focus on the exacta. Is that kind of, am I reading you right in that? Definitely. That's definitely it. And uh, um, once I don't have a strong opinion on any position in the race, whether it's obviously if I don't have a key horse, I'm not betting the race. Um, if I don't have a couple key horses to use in second, uh, I'm I'm not betting the race unless the horse is a decent you know number, and then I might just make a win bet. You know, there's times where I make a win bet only because um, I don't know. I'm not confident who's running second. I'm I'm not going to put a ten to one shot that I like on top and go, you know, that ten to one shot over five horses. I'd rather just take that money and put it all to win on that horse. I don't want to spread around a lot, you know. And uh, so yeah, like you hit it perfectly. If I got to go too deep in any spot i i avoid it I, I just don't do it so when you say too deep you mean t-o-o -O, right too yes deep. exactly yeah, yeah right yeah 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 no definitely yeah uh, like i said most of the time the, as deep as i'll go would be one a key horse on top with two horses in the two hole and maybe four hosts four horses in the three hole but most likely it's one by two by three those are the races I really key on. You know, when I have that opinion, that's when I'm betting it. If if not, if I gotta go 
he horse by two horses and then i'm like yeah there's seven horses who i think are all similar for third i just won't play the try that race i'll just narrow in i'll take the money and put it into the exactas and, and maybe a win bet only so how about sizing the bets do you bet sort of a fixed amount on a race you like or is it vary and if it does you know how do you decide how much you're going to put into each race and then that follow-on question would be you know how do you divide it among the pools you know when exact to try yeah you usually i don't have a set number um i i have a comfort level where you know i'm not gonna bet you know five thousand in a race or something like that that's out of my comfort level um, but I have a comfort level where, you know, if it works out where I decide I'm making a win bet, exactas and trifectas, I'll spread it out a little bit, but I'm always going to have, my exacta is always going to take the majority of my bankroll, you know, on a strong play. It's always going to be more money in the exacta pools for me, um, and and people will say to me at times, well, don't you feel bad if, if you miss the exacta and you're betting way more in the exacta than the win price? And I'm like, you know what? In the long run, I think by making bigger exactas, if my horse wins, that means I set the race up right. I set up the pace of the race right. My horse is going to run to win based on my numbers and how I the race shape. And if that's the case, if he wins, most likely my next two horses are going to run with him. And I don't feel bad about, you know, passing on a big win bet and missing the exacta. So a great, a high percentage of my dollar in a race is always in the exacta pools. And, uh, and then probably the tri pool in the win bet would probably get the same amount of money bet. You know, if it's if it's three hundred dollars on the win side, I probably got three hundred dollars in in the try side, and then probably at least double that in the exacta pools. You know, and, and that's usually how I try to do it. So, like one quarter to the win and try, and one half to the exacta. Assuming you played all three, that's kind of how you allocate across the pools. Yeah, that's a pretty good breakdown. I would say that's very realistic of most of my bets, and and if I don't make the win bet. I might jack up my exacta a touch more or my tries a touch more um, and take the money out of the win. But I, I wouldn't necessarily, oh, I got to bet $1,000 in the race. I never say to myself, that's what I'm doing. It, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it would it would vary, um, you know, per race, per opinion as to what I'm doing. But But I also learned, you know, don't bet out of your comfort level because once you start betting out of your comfort level, whatever that is, I mean, you know, who am I to say you should bet, you know, 50 in a race or $4 in a race or 2000 in a race, you know, everybody has to stay within their own comfort level because once you start getting out of your comfort level, you think, you know, uh, you think totally different and, and the bankroll is what the, is going to make you make bad decisions. And I don't want to get to that back to that person I was 30 years ago, Chris. <laughs> so you're really selective and it's not unusual for you to only play one or two races on the card is that true i mean you yeah. may pay more but just like a typical day how many say it's a, a 10 race card how many races would you play on average 
I would say at the at the most, it would probably be three. Most likely, I'm not finding more than three bets in a card. You know, like I said, if it's, uh, you know, I think today Ellis had uh, two two maiden races with a lot of first starters. So already that narrows me down to eight races to choose from. They had a mile and a quarter turf race. That is not my specialty. So that narrowed down another race that I most likely did not, are, are never going to have a strong opinion in. So I really only have seven races to choose from. And, uh, and, and that's been a game changer. I think, you know, years ago when, uh, you know, in the Chicago days when, you know, you had a track on Saturday at Arlington and they had 25,000 people at Arlington on a Saturday and 24,800 of them were just there for the fun of it, you know, guys who play every day ate that up so we had way way more betting opportunities when we had you know bad money in the pool and bad money is you know the the, the person who comes out and they're betting the favorite their favorite uh you know jockey or their favorite colors of the horse whatever it is you know that's what uh, good horse players want to take advantage of years ago we had that Nowadays, you know, there's too many sharp players out there um, who are way better than me, who are in my pools every day. And I don't I don't like that. You know, I, I don't want to compete against Jim Bennis. You know, I don't want to compete against uh, my son. I don't want to compete against Mike Mulvihills, my other good friend. Uh, you know, I want to compete against the people who are coming out you know, three times a year. They got a lot of money in their pocket and they really don't care about giving it away to the racetracks. And hopefully I'm one of the guys who's going to take advantage of that, you know, and, uh, and we don't have that as much anymore, nowhere near as it was uh, uh, pre simulcasting days, I think is, uh, you know, what really hurt the guys who play every day. We lost, we lost our huge edge. Yeah, that's a common theme. We hear from a lot of the players. I want to go back a little bit where you talked about confidence because you do two things I think could could undermine your confidence possibly um, unless you handle it right. And the first was you, know, you talk to Jim. How do you handle like when he has a different opinion? Does that does that um, make you change your opinion? Do you maybe uh, a does it maybe I, I'm just curious how when there's a difference, how you handle that? Um, we both we, we both would answer this the same way. We never listen to each other. I, I shouldn't say that. That's a bad way of putting it. We listen to each other, but we are done handicapping when we talk. So when we get and we'll talk usually 45 minutes before the races start. So I'm done handicapping. He's usually done handicapping. Sometimes he isn't because he takes too long. He takes a lot longer than me. But we always talk when we're done handicapping. And we never, he will almost never sway me off a horse. And never will I sway him off a horse. Um, but we do talk through, you know, if I have a best bet, um, he'll... He'll give me sometimes, oh, here's what I saw that maybe you didn't see, and maybe you should relook at it. And most of the times we both have looked at 
the cards so thoroughly that, yeah, I saw that gym and I still like the horse that I'm on, you know? So it, it is so rare that we talk each other off horses um, or that we like. What we do help each other on is, um, you know, there might be a, a 20 to one shot or 15 to one shot that we're using in tries or supers that the other one of us might've missed a horse who's, you know, because you can make, you can make a nice score. And this is something we probably didn't touch on. And a lot of guys don't always touch on, you know, you don't necessarily have to have the winner of a race. You know, if, if you have a 20 to one shot, um, who's going to run third and your winner, your key horse that you like in first is two to one, nine to five you're still going to get a great return on that try. If you can find that hidden 20 to one shot or 25 to one shot to run third. And those are the kind of things that me and him talk through. You know, if I have a good bet or he has a good bet, then he'll tell me, yeah, I like the one with the two, three with the two, three, four. And I'm like, Hey, did you see the sevens trip last time? Or did you see this or that? He's going to be 25 to one. You might want to use him in the three hole. That's what we, you know, really rely on or help each other through a lot of times. And, you know, because our skills and our handicapping is a lot similar, it comes back to that confidence thing where I trust him. You know, there's there's no one out there who, you know, there's two people that I know in my life where if they called me and said, Frank, I know you're going to be gone all day today. You might want to make a little bet on such and such today. Jim Bennis, and there's the guy who taught me how to handicap. Um, those are the only two guys that I would bet in the blind off of uh, and respect their opinions. And not saying there's not great players out there. I'm not saying that. But those are two guys that I know that I have crazy confidence in, in how they handicap. And I, I would listen to them occasionally in the blind and, and, and make a small bet. I would never bet a lot of money, but I would make a little bit of money because uh, – I, I do trust them, you know, or bet a little money because I do trust their opinions. So that's interesting. You brought that up. Do you, um, uh, on the, uh, the longer price horses, do you ever key? Do you ever, is your key ever like an underneath key or do you always play with that like primary opinion on top and then you just might have secondary keys underneath? Yeah, it's, it does happen where I'm keying that 20 to one shot. Um, third only in a try, or maybe I'll use them second, uh, and I'll put a few horses on top. It, it, it does happen on occasion, but most of the time, I want to narrow in on a key horse that I think is going to run, that's going to win most likely. That's how I do it. And I might play that, you know, that winning key horse on top with another key horse second and third. You know, I might play my four to one on top of a 20 to one in a try, second and third. And, and, you know, and there's times where it comes back to beat me where, you know, I get so confident in my key. I don't even make a backup exacta with the 20 to one shot who I didn't think could win. You know, you know, there's 20 to one. There was a horse today that the, another friend of mine called me on and asked my opinion and the horse, you know, went off at a decent number and he was going to bet him to win. And I said, well, I can't come up with a trip that this horse is going to win. I said, but. He's a horse that I'm definitely using in the three hole because he's a big price. He's a little hidden and, and I can use him there, but I can't come up with a scenario where this horse is going to get a trip, you know, going five and a half on the turf where he's 
you know, not going to be three wide at some point and being three wide, he's not good enough to be, you know, a couple of these other horses. And that was kind of what happened. I think the horse ran fourth today and um, stuff like that. So usually I'm, I need to hit, I need to, my confidence level was the highest when I have a key horse to key off of. And rarely am I just uh, keying in the horse in the two or three hole, you know, not saying I don't do it because I do it once in a while, but that's not one of my, my main plays usually. So you focus on one circuit. Do you um, target any of like the, like the big day they had at Ellis here recently, the, what was it? Stephen Foster day. Do you target those at all play more on those days or is it just another day on the circuit? Yeah, it's just another day for me. I mean, you know, I think when I say I play one circuit, it's a little misleading because like with Delmar starting next week, I'll play the Delmar circuit a little bit because I will be down for the Delmar contest, you know, in two weeks. So I do want to, you know, get myself acclimated to what's happening leading up to the contest. So I do follow um, that circuit. Uh, in years past, when I was playing Gulfstream, I'd always follow the Keeneland circuit. Um, I wouldn't follow it as close as I follow my main circuit, but I would watch it enough to know, hey, is there biases or, you know, is this jockey really hot with this trainer all of a sudden? I wanted to know those little things so that when I got to the contest, I at least had some idea of what's going on. And then I would spend, you know, three or four days leading up to the contest day just handicapping like crazy for that contest day and just trying basically to find one play that's that's really kind of what i do um on that on those kind of things when i'm playing outside of my circuit so let's talk about contests that's a good lead-in so describe a little bit about how you approach contests and how it might be, how you play it differently, if at all, than you do on a regular day. And, you know, you know, what, what you try to do to get an edge on the other players, do you, are you shooting for a, a number? Um, just curious how you go about that. You're trying to load up on one horse and, and go all in, you know, what's your approach? Yeah, usually, you know, it, it's all bankroll based, you know, most of the contests other than you know, BCBC and some of the bigger ones, you know, most of the contests we play in, we have a limited bankroll, you know, you have a thousand dollars or $2,000. Um, so if, if it's a thousand dollar bankroll, the chances are at the very most, I'm only making two bets out of that. You know, I'll bet 500 for race and, and try to cash for, you know, whatever that number is. If I think the number needs to be 7,000 or 10,000, I try to create a ticket structure that would get me to that. And sometimes, you know, if I do that, my opinion might only be, um, you know, one race and I might bet the whole thousand in one race in the contest, you know, and the nice thing is you get to buy a second entry or multiple entries in some of these things. And, and if you have a multiple entry, well, now your bankroll went from 1,000 to 2,000 now I potentially could turn that into two, maybe three bets between my two entries. And, and the way I play um, daily is the exact same way I'll play in the contest. You know, I, I might have a, you know, some big exactives that's, uh, that's paying $50 for two, and I might have it for three or $400 to, to, you know, to use up my whole bankroll. But if I'm right, I know I'm getting to the, 
I'm getting to the leaderboard or I'm getting to a prize position already. And then after I do that, then I decide, okay, did, you know, who's on the leaderboard behind me? Who's close to me? Who do I got to worry about? Uh, you know, you know, is such and such there. And then, and then if those guys are around, then I know, okay, the, the target number I originally set is now not necessarily the target number anymore. You know, you might have to bet to get higher than that, but, uh, but I'm going to structure something. And I, and when I go to the racetrack, I know what I'm betting. When I go to a contest day, I'm pretty confident. I know what my play is before, you know, I leave my house or my hotel room. I'm, I'm locked in on what I'm going to do with that, uh, uh, with that major first play that I'm going to make in the contest. So it sounds like you are trying, you, you might make one or two bets, maybe a couple more, depending on the bankroll size and the format, but you're trying to, with one bet, get yourself, if not to the target number you think might win, right up there in the, near the top of the leaderboard where you're in, con, you're in contention to win. That's sort of, you're trying to do that in one race, right? Without a doubt. Yeah. I'm not like you, you know, like you heard me say about uh, how many races I play a day. It's not a lot. So I don't have a lot of opportunities to, to grind away. And, you know, if I got a thousand and turn it into 1800, I don't have the confidence that I could do that eight times in a 10 race card or six times in a 10 race card to get my bankroll up to the number it needs to be to, to cash. And then, uh, um, you know, so I'd rather put my life on the line on my strongest opinion and and do that and if it's the first race of a contest and i gotta go broke in the first race and that's my best bet oh well that's what i'm gonna do you know i i i'm not one of those who waits around even though i i you know i had a thing last week where i qualified for the nhc where i i sat around on one of my three entries to the very last race and played a chalk exacta that got me to third in the contest and got my second NHC, you know, bit out of the way. So uh, I don't normally do that, but this kind of thing, the the way the contest was structured, I thought, you know, making a one number chalk exacto would either get me to win or very close and, and get me to cash and, and it, it knocked my second NHC out of the thing. So, uh, so I'm done with that now. And, uh, um, now I just concentrate on, you know, accumulating hopefully more of the other live money things because that's that's what I love to do. I, I don't necessarily – the NHC, I love the tournament. I know that one of us guys is going to possibly win three-quarters of a million dollars. I think it's an impossibility to win that contest, even though my son won it, Jim Bennis won it. I still think it is so hard to win that contest, in my opinion. So. For two people that close to me to do it just seems insanity. And if they already took the lightning bolt, uh, how am I going to do it? You know, I think that's a hard contest to win. I much rather take my chances that I can win a BCBC because it really, really, you know, um, attaches to the way I bet every day. Yeah, well, it sounds to me like it's your turn. You know, you've had Jim and Justin, so now it's, it's your turn to win the NAC. Well, I I hope you're right. Uh, I hope I live long enough that I can do that. I, I, I don't have, when I go there every year, um, I don't have, you know, and I'm a very confident player when I play, but I don't have a lot of confidence that I'm having a lot of success in the NHC. I've cashed a lot. I, I think I've cashed probably five of the last eight years or something like that. And, 
you know, had a had a seventh or seventh or eighth place finish a bunch of years ago. But that contest to me is such a grind. It is so hard. It, not my style. And, and again, I love it because one of us guys in that room um, are going to walk away with what three quarters of a million dollars. So where can we go and say that any other day of the year? There's not another time where we know one of us is going to win that kind of money, but still a great tournament. I mean, a great contest because, you know, there's always that dream when you get off the plane in Vegas, that one of the guys there getting off that plane are going to walk away with a huge check for the weekend. So, um, but it's not on my radar. I'd rather play in, you know, we talked about this the other day. I'd rather play in five, six, seven other live money contests, Breeders' Cup, Pegasus, Delmar, Keeneland, you know, some of those big money ones where uh, I can walk in there and, and walk away with, you know, a six-figure weekend. Um, more reasonable to me that I can do that than, than winning the NHC. Well, yeah, and I mean, and the live betting brings in the whole betting aspect, right, that the NHC doesn't have. So, I mean, it is a whole different skill set that, that you need to, to apply. But for me, you know, I like them all, uh, but I totally agree with you that um, there's probably most of the players at the NAC feel like going into that contest that this could be their weekend. If they get lucky and get hot, they might win it. Whereas in the BCBC, I think it's probably a much smaller number of players going into that contest thinking they actually might win it. Um, I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Without a doubt, yeah. You know, if I had a... If I had to put the number of people um, who can win the BCBC, it's definitely a lot smaller number than it can win the NAC because you really, you know, you got to be so perfect. Um, you know, I sat with my son through the whole NHC when he won. And, and this is, you know, 100%. I did not even know. And if you sat at our table, there's not a lot of table talk amongst us best friends, me and my son during contests. Um, I didn't even realize he was in contention until probably halfway through day two. Um, and he, and he, you know, he plays his way. He plays totally different than I do. Um, I taught him how to handicap. He looks for different things than I do um, because he plays a smaller amount of money, but he was so perfect. I mean, he, you know, you could probably listen to some of his podcasts years ago. I think, if I recall, I want to say in the first two days, I don't think he even cashed a dollar in the mandatories, but his optionals were off the charts. So when he was able to pick his own races, you know, the numbers would blow you away. Like he collected little to no money in the mandatories, but his optionals, he was like, 80% or 70% right when he got to pick his own race. And, and I think that's my whole point here is that I need to pick what race I want to bet for me to have success. And, and that's kind of what I taught him that he did a good job of learning. Um, God, if you can pick your own races to bet and not just bet whatever race is up on the screen next, that's when you give your chance a self a chance to have some success and and that doesn't always even mean that you're having great success you know some of these guys who 
you know, Jim Bennis, who did this for a living, and, and Mike Maloney's that I've heard on your podcast, and Sean Borman, and some of those guys just absolutely astonishes me that you can make a living doing horse racing, support a family like those guys did. My hat's off to those guys because that's uh, that's a tough road, a tough life, and 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 I don't, you know, not something I ever really wanted to do or try. And uh, uh, that's a that's a tough thing. And and my hats off to them for pulling it off. Yeah, it's it, there's not a whole lot of players out there that are doing it and making a living off it. Um, it is a it's a tough game. Like you said, it's gotten tougher over the years. And that's what the guys like Mike Maloney and Jim Bennis will will tell you. It was easier yeah. in the old days. Um but they're still grinding away and still successful. Um, but they've changed. They've had to change and make adjustments. So what do you think is the biggest adjustment that you've made? You know, you you were playing back when it was easier with your numbers, and then you took a break, and you came back, and it was a little tougher, but you've had some success. You know, what are the, the biggest adjustments that you made, um, you know, over time to stay stay on top of the game? Definitely being more selective. Uh, if I got to go through a whole card and do all the work um, and, and not even come up with one bet, then I got to have the discipline to do that. Um, that's definitely what I've, you know, really, really adjusted to is, you know, only bet the races where I am really confident in. And if I can just do that, um, that's when I think, you know, the success is. The problem with that is, you know, you're putting in a lot of work. And if you're only betting one race, two races, three race, races a week, you start to think to yourself, is this worth it? Do I, you know, really want to spend all this time to only bet that many races a week? And then I think guys get caught up in the trap, like, I got to bet more races because I'm doing the work. Or, you know, I've lost my last four bets, I'm due. Well, that's not the way to do it, you know, and that and that's what I've learned is, if I lose, you know, for two weeks straight or whatever the thing is, wait, be patient, wait for your next good play. And, uh, and if you do it the right way and, and bet kind of the right way, you could overcome, you know, some of those losing streaks because I don't think there's many people. And, and we see that in the NHC, just look, you know, when you think about it, look how easy it sounds, you know, like at the beginning of the NHC, that's all you have to do is turn, what is it, $144 into $160, and you will cash and be advancing to day three. Now, when I tell people that I didn't make it to day three, I started with $144, and I only needed to make $16 profit, and I couldn't do that, they're like, why do you do, why do you bet horses every day if you couldn't even make $16 over two days, you know? So that just tells you how hard this game is if you're forced to bet every race for the same amount of money. It's not something that is easy to do uh, to be profitable if you bet a lot of races and if you don't vary your opinions bankroll-wise on your stronger opinions. So that being selective, and you seem to be highly selective, you focus in on primarily one circuit, and then you know probably aren't playing more than a few races 
per card on that circuit. So you you've been you become highly selective. Definitely, I and 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 the contest stuff makes you know when I look at that. I mean, the contest for me now, the live money. I'm a little disappointed that we don't have a lot more live money opportunities. Um, it started a couple of years ago where we had every weekend at least a five hundred dollar you know thing on express bet. Now, you know, I can't remember the last tournament I live money I played in. It was probably a few weeks ago somewhere. I can't remember where, but whatever. Or oh, it was the Hawthorne Invitational. I think it was the last live money one we played in. And now my ne my next live money one won't be till Delmar in a week and a half. So um, I look forward to those live monies, but we don't have a lot of them to to go around, unfortunately, for some reason. And I, I, I don't understand why racetracks don't do it. You know, you have... Uh, you know, you have people who want to do it and, and, it, and it's money bet into your pools guaranteed. Whenever a guy signs up for a live money contest, he has to bet the money in your pools. So put those contests out there. It's only going to help your handle, you know, and and for some reason, racetracks aren't capitalizing that on that real well, in my opinion. Yeah, it was it was tough just to get racetracks to even uh, do any kind of contest. Not that long ago, You're, it's like anything in racing, <laughs> change is hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Taking any sort of a chance with something new, um, and plus they just don't understand it. But you're right; it is disappointing. You would think, either I look back at a longer over a longer period of time, there's a lot more opportunities now than there were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but you would hope it would continue to grow um, at a, a pretty rapid rate. And we, we kind of haven't seen that in recent years, which is disappointing for people who like to play in the contest. And like you said, you know, the live money contests, uh, it's seems like it would be obvious to racetracks how it could benefit them. I mean, it's putting money in their pools, but- um, right. Science yeah, and to, you know, there are tracks that have bought into it. You know, Hawthorne's is probably, you know, one of the most um, prolific in terms of the contests. But, you know, Keeneland doesn't run that often, but they have some great contests. Monmouth does quite a bit. Um, Express Bet does do contests, you know, so there are some there. Um, but you're right. It just seems like there's an opportunity that's being missed um, that, you know, more more tracks could get on board with that. Definitely. And contests are fun. And, um, you know, one thing about the contest is typically you're not competing against the computer teams. And we haven't spent a lot of time on that, but I did want to ask you about, you know, uh, do you do anything, you know, recognizing they're out there? Has that changed the way you bet or the way you approach the races? I, I was so stupid and naive. Up until probably a couple years ago, listening to podcasts, um, I didn't even realize that that was such a detriment to our game as it is. Um, and when I started to hear about it, understand it, and um, knew the effect that it had on what I do, that's when I'm like, "Wow, I didn't know this. I, where was I? You know, how come I'm not paying attention to this?" and and some of the people out there, the Pat Cummings, who I've talked to, and, you know, these guys just basically have the facts right in front of them, how these people are hurting our game so severely, you know, um, without a doubt. And and that was definitely a reason where why I left 
you know, the Gulfstream circuit because I felt that those guys had such an advantage by being the last one in the pool. You know, like, like the other guys have said, it's uh, they're creating their own market. And, and that's that's not fair to the guys like myself who, you know, supported Gulfstream day in and day out for, you know, over a decade. And to, and to give these guys that edge, um, just to me, is very not looking long term for the game and, and just looking to capitalize on that short term turnaround of getting that handle and don't care if they're chasing the everyday everyday guys away. I don't I don't know if that's their goal because maybe their goal is that horse race. They know horse racing is coming to an end soon and they want to capture everything they can. I hope that's not it. Um, but, you know, just before I went on here, unfortunately, I just heard somebody text me saying that Golden Gate's closing their operations because Southern California wants to increase their field size. Now, I don't know if that's 100% true, accurate. Someone just texted me that, but uh, I'm hoping we're not starting to see, you know, racetracks even more so go by the wayside because uh, we love the game too much. And, and to see it go away, you know, maybe it won't happen in mine in your lifetime, Chris. Uh, I'm hoping it sticks around long enough for me. But uh, the game has gone in a bad direction in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, in my opinion. Well, I'm kind of old, but I play out in the West and I. It would take me 10 minutes to list all the tracks that have closed in Washington, Oregon, California, even Mexico, Alacaliente. Um, I mean, uh, probably a dozen tracks have closed since I've started playing. And now we're down yeah. to, you know, a couple in Southern California and one in Washington. And, and that's it for the whole Pacific Northwest, West Coast. Um, Turf Paradise is going to close out. So even there, go go start going inland to Arizona. So, yeah, I mean that it's been a brutal, you know, nonstop uh, consolidation um, yeah. tracks going away. So, and they, well, yeah. that, but we yeah, can't blame it all on the computers, right? Um, they're definitely a part of it. They've, they've, um, they definitely might be discouraging players, but have you adjusted the way you bet or anything based on that? You know, now your awareness of, they're out there. I mean, clearly, you know, the late odds changes. You saw that all the time in Gulfstream. Um, do you, does that change the way you bet or plan to play or anything? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am very aware of it. I try to bet as late as possible, which isn't the answer. I found out that's not the answer because the odds, they still can change it after me. Um, so, you know, sometimes, I wonder if it makes sense that you just bet your opinion early and force them to to see what you're doing and force them to go the other way almost, you know, because I think that's kind of, I don't know how they play. I, I've asked so many people and, and whatever that, you know, that their efficiency of the pools. So, you know, maybe we trick them and, and bet our stuff early and throws them all off. I don't know the answer. I'm just being, I'm just kind of guessing at certain things, but I've tried just about everything and it just seems like uh, they have such an advantage over, uh, over everybody else by being that last guy in every pool. You know, we, we, we like to bet, you know, value or we like to bet, bet the price that 
we want to get it at. And, and it's so depressing when you bet an exacta that's paying $48, they cross the wire and, and you think you're cashing for whatever you're cashing for. And then you look up and you're getting 80% of what you thought you were getting and have zero control over it. And, and, and that never happened, you know, up until the last probably 10 or 15 years. You know, when I put a bet in with two minutes to post, yeah. I knew within reason I was getting back pretty close to what I planned on getting back if I was right. Nowadays, it changes, you know, your price can be cut in half sometimes. And that's, uh, that's a, an impossible way for, you know, people to do this. And I think make a living at it if that's what some of these guys want to do, or even the horse players like myself who just want to stay in the game and, and have some success. Um, it's really hard for us to, uh, to play every day when we don't, we don't know what the return is going to be when we make our bet. Yeah, it's definitely another challenge to being successful. Um, yeah, I, ne I never thought I had to look at that before. And that's something in the last three to five years, you know, I'm scouring the, uh, the exacta pools and the trifecta pools and, you know, uh, you know, to the very last second or very last minute before I put my bet in. And then, you know, I'm just waiting so long or before I used to like to bet with five minutes to post. And you know, years ago, we could do that and still get, you know, close to what the odds were at that time. And now it's totally changed. So what about a couple other topics we haven't hit on record keeping? Do you do you keep records of your wagers and and you look at that and do you use that to to learn anything about your betting or is you know I'm just curious what you do if anything in terms of record keeping yeah most of my stuff is done you know on my my account so I can see it day in day out what I'm doing um the contests uh what I do there is I know at the beginning of every January 1st if I play in every contest, you know, uh, every live money contest, if I enter and just buy, you know, the maximum number of entries, which I normally always do, there's a dollar amount that goes with that. And, and I basically say to myself, okay, you know, if that's going to be $80,000 a year in contests, live money contest entries, you know, you buy two BCBCs and two Pegasus and two Keenlands, you know, those numbers add up real fast. So if you're spending 80,000 and then travel to get to these places, uh, which we don't have to do as much anymore, but once, once I reach $80,000 in return, that's when I breathe that sigh of relief. Like, okay, I know I'm spending 80,000 for the year. I already won 80,000 in cash and prizes. It's now June 20th. Everything from here on out is gravy. That's when I know that, okay, my year is going to be fun and successful and it's worth what I do. And that's, uh, um, that's how I keep track of all of that stuff. My day-to-day -day keeps track of it by itself, you know, because I'm always betting on uh, my 1ADW site and uh, they, it's a good job, you know, they track everything for me. So I don't have to keep track of that. I can, I can pull that up every morning when I wake up and see how I'm doing year to date or the day before or whatever. And, and I, I do monitor that and make sure that, uh, you know, you know, I don't want to have years like I had last year at Gulfstream. Cause if I do that, then I got, I need to get out of the game because that's not, uh, 
that's not fun. And, you know, I'm sure my, uh, my wife and my sons don't want to see, uh, dad, you know, blowing tons of money that we earned in our business on, uh, on horse races. I, I do that enough in the horses that I, the horses that I own now, you know? So, uh, that's my other thing that goes with this is, uh, I got to get a stakes winner soon so I can, uh, not own horses anymore, but, uh, but I do love that side of it too. That's a lot of fun and, uh, uh it's enjoyable and, uh, I'll, I'll probably continue to do that for, you know, a long time. So owning horses, a little different than betting on them, but, uh, through the ownership side, what have you learned about the betting side, if anything? Um, you know, it's it's a totally different thing when you own horses as far as to betting, but what you do find out from that side is to read a condition book, which is something that I think probably most horse players never did. That can be somewhat of a help if you know, you know, sometimes we'll question, you know, why is this guy running this horse in this particular spot? You know, either the drop or he's, you know, raising the horse big, you know, way up out of his, you know, condition for some reason. Well, if you know the condition book of where he's at, it might answer a lot of questions for you. You know, this guy might've been trying to get in a race for three weeks now on the dirt, the race doesn't fill. So he's just running on the dirt because the horse is ready to run and he's just rolling the dice that the horse likes the turf, you know, or something like that. I think that's a, that's a, that could help you. I'm not saying it's a huge help, but it's, but it's another variable that might, you know, answer some questions for you when you know the condition book for the circuit you're playing as to what the intentions might be for that horse through the trainer or owner's eyes, uh, uh by knowing what's happening. Cause it's, it's not easy. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very good friends with Larry Ravelli here in Chicago and trying to get horses into races when, you know, circuits only run three days a week and they only have seven or eight races a day. You're talking about 24 races, you know, in a week to fit conditions for horses that range from fillies, colts, three-year-olds and up three-year-olds, straight three-year-olds, two-year-olds. If you do the math, it's hard nowadays to get races to go um, for certain horses. So knowing that condition book could help, uh, could help your, you know, your horse handicapping too. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, do you bet on your horses? Um, <laughs> I am probably in Chicago. I, I could probably forward a text to you. My partner Mike Mulvihill, who's me and him own the same percentage of every horse, almost identical. We're partners on everything. We are probably most overbet owners in the country he said he sent me a text the other day saying that we've lost with more two to five shots than any owners in the country in the last two years you know i, I think a lot of it's because you know in chicago here people know who we are and at hawthorne a smaller circuit they always think that you know because we enter a horse and ravelli's our trainer that oh they must know something they're gonna win for sure yeah that that's not what's happening here you know so that's so i don't get a chance to bet my horses because we are so over bet here in chicago and and we haven't won a ton of races with a few you know we don't have a lot of horses i i have you know parts of three or four or five left now and whatever but 
Yeah, I don't. Uh, and again, if I was going to bet my horse, it would have to be because I really like my horse. I mean, we're going to put him in a spot where he thinks he wins, but that doesn't always mean that he's still going to win that day just because that's where we entered him. The race shape still has to fit up and everything. So I don't bet my horse just to bet it because I own it. Um, most times I'm probably doing the opposite. Uh, I'd really have to really, really like him to bet him because I'm like, hey, just give me the purse money and the picture and I'll be totally satisfied with that is it more fun to win a race with the horse you owned or to cash a big ticket on a horse you bet on you know i i think it is more to go to that winner circle i mean that is just so much fun um to do that um you know with my association with larry ravelli now and his couple of his big owners or one major owner you know vince fogley or patricia's hope i had a unbelievable bucket list thing that i knocked off this year i got to spend the entire week with them with two fills down at the kentucky derby like i i don't own the horse i don't own any of it at all but i got to spend the whole week with them in the owner's box with them like i was one of the owners and it was the absolute thrill of a lifetime for me and, and if anybody you know ever gets an opportunity to be at a Kentucky Derby in an owner's box with the horse, you know, who ran second there. Um, it was just a thrill. And I can't thank those guys enough for making me a part of it. And my wife, we just had a, you know, an unbelievable week. And, uh, and I, I thank them for it. It was really, really exciting. And to get that picture in that winter circle uh, with a, your own horse to me anyway, is just, uh, it's hard to do. And it, it's, it's something crazy for me and I love it. Everyone, even if the five claimer, when I get that picture, I, you know, I get a copy of it and I keep it and, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it, you know? And uh, so, yeah, that's probably something that's more fun for me, to be honest. Well, you almost got into a Kentucky Derby win picture Two Phil's wasn't that far away from winning. Yeah, no, I did. And I, I actually had a, you know, they had another horse that day that won a half a million dollar race at 38 to one. So that set our day off to begin with. So I got in that winner's circle picture and got to experience all that goes with that with them and, and cash in a nice ticket with them on that. So um, yeah, it would have been the ultimate unbelievable week if two fills would have uh, ran another length and a nose faster or whatever it was. And uh, um you know, so it was a great week. I bet it was, um, pun intended. Um, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned early on that you were always a, a gambling fan. Are there other gambling games you play? If so, you know, what are those? And has that influenced the way you play the horses at all? Yeah, I do bet sports. Um, not by my picks. <laughs> um uh, I, I listen to people who are very good at it, who have a lot of success at it, and I'm not any good at it. I know I can't, uh, I, don't, I don't know if the Bears are going to beat the Packers, and I don't know any of that stuff. I don't work at it, but but I do have some some friends who are very good at it, and, and I follow their lead. Um, uh, so that's the only other way I'll play some, you know, some college football, a little bit of NFL on the weekends through, uh, you know, the casinos here or through the uh, apps on our phones nowadays. I'll do that. But uh, 
I, you know, like I said earlier, I, I lost too much money in some of those things years ago, and I know how hard it is. And if I'm not putting the work in, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go ahead and do it unless someone's given me some advice that they're really good at and proven history, and that that's all that I follow. But I don't do any of that other stuff anymore, uh, um, other than just for you know, just for fun. If I if I go to a game or something, I might make a little bet just to have some more, some vested interest in the game uh you know we're going to be going to the Padres game when we're at Del Mar on the Friday before the Del Mar contest me and my wife and Dylan Donnelly so maybe we'll bet on the game for that but other than that I don't I don't do a lot of that stuff all right well I I'm gonna wrap it up here in a minute a couple last questions I'd like to ask first of all you know if you had a magic wand that you could wave and to make some change to make the racing game better what would you do i think the biggest thing that in my opinion that would help have less wager types available to the public you know we have so many different opportunities to spread that dollar out within every race uh, i think if we went back and condensed some of that and made the pools bigger and gave people the opportunities to, um, you know, just have a pool where the win bet or the win pools were bigger or the trifecta pools or exacta pools. But when the money is spread out to all these different pools, even the daily or the, the person who comes out once in a blue moon, I think they take their bankroll and they say, I'm going to bet. A 50 cent try, a 50 cent thing. They're spreading their money so far out that they really don't have a chance to have success. And I think we're chasing so many people away. Because if you're not going to win or not going to win once in a while and cash a ticket, I think the people, we're just losing the people too easily. You know, um, I mean, you see people go to the track and you'll see how excited they get when they cash a ticket. You know, there's people you'll hear them. They bet $5 across the board on their horse, cost them $15. Their horse runs third and pays $320 to show. They lose money, and they're bragging that they're cashing a ticket. So make it so the people can cash tickets somehow, even if they're losing money. Let them cash tickets so they have fun. But all these additional pools that we have nowadays, I think, is a detriment. I think the tracks. Um, are still going to get the handle. People are going to bet what they're going to bet when they come out to the racetrack. And if you give them two pools or three as opposed to six or seven, I think that they're still going to bet the same amount of dollars with, with smaller pools. And that would be the thing that the – and getting ready to the jackpot things. I used to play those rainbows when they first came out. Um, and I know it's a stupid bet mathematically, um, but I used to – have success doing it and and that's why i did it for a couple of years but then i realized oh my goodness it's you know you'd make a, a rainbow bet and halfway through the card it would rain all the races are off the turf and everybody got alls and your tickets gone down to nothing you lost money automatically so i gave up on all those i do play them only when it's a mandatory payout on that kind of stuff now and that's it um but changing the pools, less pools, less ones to bet into, maybe that's the way to do it. And I'm sure 
Pat Cummings or Marshall Graham probably might have more data on that than me, but uh, I could I could be way off, but that's just you know what goes through my mind that might help. Yeah, that's interesting. We I haven't heard that before, but you're kind of like going back to the future and maybe all these new pools you don't need as many, and for, you know if you tighten it up a little bit, it might help. So that's yeah. interesting. All right, I want to wrap it up with a real high note, hopefully. And if you are willing to share with us like a memorable score, it doesn't have to be your biggest score, but you know, you know, what was the most memorable score you had as a horse player that you look back on fondly um, when you're reflecting on your career as a horse player? It's a real easy one, and it it goes back to. I want to say 1997-98, um, I had a horse that it was called Hawaiian Lord was the name of the horse. And it was a horse that I I was waiting for for two months. It kept on getting bad trips and against biases and all kinds of stuff. And my mom, when she was alive, every Thursday, she had a bowling league with her ladies friends and then after the bowling league in the morning they would go to the otb at arlington and she would tell me she would just say can you let me know who you like and she would make you know i would give her two horses or whatever it was in a race and she would make dollar exacta boxes all her and her girlfriends and the the day hawaiian lord ran um the horse was somewhere in the 25 to 1 range and i gave her that horse as a key over two other horses and I was at Arlington watching the race live, and she was at the OTB right across the street on the grounds of Arlington. The horse won the exacta page somewhere just short of a signer, because I know my mom didn't have to sign for it. So it was somewhere in the range of like $580 or $90 for two. I made a real big score, the biggest score of my life at that point by far. Um, to probably get me out of the hole of what I owed everybody at that time um, when I did it. But I had a buddy who was at the OTB at that point, and he came over to the track, and he's like, Frank, he said, I think your mom and all her lady friends must have hit something big because the whole place went up for grabs when this race ran, and that's when I knew all my that my mom and um, all her friends cashed on their dollar exacta box that probably got them to be able to bet for the next, you know, three years for free, probably. So uh, not only did it make me money, but it made my mom a ton of money when she was alive. And, and, that, and that'll be the one, no matter what I ever do from that point on, money-wise or cashing for a BCBC, uh, it would never outdo having her involved in something like that. So that one will always be going on as my favorite one um, ever. And then obviously the second best one would be my son went in the NHC. That was uh, the one we talked about earlier that, you know, for him, it was just unbelievable. And for me, the experience with them is off the charts. Yeah, what's cool about that is you're you're talking about three generations of your family, right? And all the way from your your mother to your son. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that anything else that um, we haven't uh, hit on that you want to mention this is your oh, last chance you, yeah no for everything that you do for the racing industry and uh you know on our committees for our horse players that you're a part of uh 
you know, all this kind of stuff is only just good for the game and helpful for the game. And, and us players, we really, really do appreciate it. And I, I know you guys probably don't get thanked enough for putting your time into, you know, doing these podcasts and passing along. Hopefully some of the stuff I said gets people interested in the game and, and maybe it helps them a little bit. I don't know how much I could have helped them by all the stuff I said, but hopefully it keeps their interest peaked and they keep on coming out to the races and, and, and a big thank you to you guys and the other guys who do all these podcasts and, and are passionate about the game. Like, uh, like myself, it, it's very appreciated. Well, thank you. And you know, that passion comes through talking to you and that's sharing that passion is one of the fun things about um, being a horse player in contest setting. We talked about that, um, you know, that you, there's a lot of camaraderie in the room, even though you're competing against one another, um, you know, because we all have that shared passion. And that's one of the things I like the best about the contests. I agree. Yeah. That, that is a lot of fun when we're all in the same room, you know, like uh, at the Hawthorne Invitational or BCBCs, NH, whatever. There's numerous ones when we're all in that same room and, and, and you know, we all want to win, but I think a lot of us are happy for most guys when, you know, we get knocked out or we're out and you see that one guy who's walking away you know, a lot of guys walking away with scores, but when you see that one guy walking away with that huge score, uh, that's going to keep us keep on coming back too, because there's always that chance uh, that the next time it could be us. So it's uh, it's fun, and I think it keeps us excited to to see those things happen. Yeah, the Edzo winning the the Hawthorne Invitation was fun. You know, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, even though I, I didn't have a great contest and I was happy for him and, and it was fun. No, definitely. It was real exciting to watch and, uh, and, you know, they'll have it again. I know next year and, and we'll all be there and, uh, you know, hopefully it keeps on, it grows and grows and uh, Hawthorne does a great job for us. They're one of the, one of the ones that just try everything that they possibly can to, uh, to keep us horse players, you know, happy and do what they can for us. And, and that's appreciated from me too. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you again for joining me. It's a really great conversation. I had a lot of fun. I also want to thank all the listeners um, out there. Uh, thanks for listening and for all the, the positive feedback. I appreciate that. And uh, may you all boldly go where no horse player has gone before.